Hey guys, thanks for checking out my new podcast, The Retrospective Perspective. Quick disclaimer for this episode. I recorded it back in March of 2020 when I was getting ready to launch the podcast and site, and we were fresh out of the 2010s. As we all know, March and the rest of 2020 would throw whatever plans anyone had out the window and cause us to reprioritize things, or at least that was the case with me. The pandemic, social justice issues, and presidential election were all things that required and in some cases demanded my energies and focus for various reasons. But I'm also happy to say that I've still slowly but surely kept working on this project and can finally say it's ready to see the light of day. To those of you who have been anticipating it, thanks for sticking by me. And to any newcomers, welcome to the retrospective perspective. And be sure to follow me on any or all of the various social medias to keep up to date with new content. With that being said, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Welcome to the Retrospective Perspective with Jeremy Ariel Diaz. I want to thank you for tuning in and checking out what I have to say on pop culture and art and its debt to itself. The 2010s, a decade without a name, but with a lot of personality. Millennial malaise turned into anxiety and then into a battle cry, and it was reflected in the music we made and listened to. It can be argued that no other decade of modern music saw such a rapid evolution of genres. So for the sake of efficiency, my aim is to highlight lines of demarcation and music story over the last 10 years. Before we dive into the 2010s, it's important to understand the torch it was carrying by looking at where the 2000s left off for context. Be sure to pull up the playlist of the songs I'll be discussing in this episode by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting theretrospectiveperspective.com. The end of the 2000s saw pop music getting darker, and maybe even grittier, compared to what it was at the start of the 2000s. If you listen to Britney Spears' Blackout, or Lady Gaga's The Fame Monster, we can see the edge that pop music was beginning to have towards the end of the decade. Compare that to the year 2000, where we had songs like Britney's Lucky and Christina Aguilera's What a Girl Wants, epitomizing pop music at the time. Music went a long way fast, and it would go even further. By the end of the 2000s, electro-pop music would become the new fad, giving radio's top 40 hits a razor's edge with computerized vocals and programmable beats. For example, some of the biggest hits of 2009 were the Black Eyed Peas' Boom Boom Pow and Jamie Foxx's Blame It on the Alcohol. So pretty much across every genre, we saw the shift towards an electronic orientation. At the start of 2010, one particular artist chose to capitalize on the electro-pop trend, having already made her foray into dance music years before everyone else jumped on the bandwagon. The advent of Robin's Body Talk EPs were one of the first major lines of demarcation to note in music at the turn of the decade. Her songs took this electro-pop sound to new heights, pure EDM. However, pure might not be the best way to describe Robin's music in 2010, because her synth confections were laced with pop melodies and killer hooks, as opposed to being straight-up club music. But it's almost indistinguishable, and that's the genius of it. This EDM sound would not only solidify what a radio hit would sound like for the next four to five years, but it would leave its mark on mainstream music. And just as we were getting ready to accept monochromatic club music as the mainstream genre of choice, nothing wrong with that, a self-proclaimed genius came out of the woodwork with honestly a quite genius record. 
Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy planted a seed that would also bring music to where it is today. Kanye, like Robin, also took the electronic beats of the time to a new level, creating an album of grandiose songs with maximalist production, lush layers, and a rebirth of prog rock. And he did it as a hip-hop artist. It feels weird to even attempt to box him in that way, because this album solidified the truth of this decade, that genres would mean nothing. In a weird way, genres would mean nothing, but they would also mean everything. Kanye's experimentation with hip-hop would cause a ripple effect that would soon make it the new pop music of the decade. Hip-hop artists would begin to dominate the charts, devour every other genre with a ravenous osmosis, and harken back to its roots as a voice for the people. On the other hand, one particular hip-hop artist would begin to look inwardly. Where Kanye gave hip-hop a new edge, Drake gave it a broken heart. Taking a page from Kanye's 2008 seminal album, 808s and Heartbreak, Drake made hip-hop songs with self-deprecating lyrics and a melancholic aesthetic, promptly becoming hip-hop's emo boy. His ability to seamlessly transition from rapping lyrics to singing them to maybe even doing both at once would be a deviation that gangster rappers of the 90s would have never dreamed of. His sing-song delivery of bars would inspire a new breed of rappers many critics would deem mumble rappers. But Drake is far from a mumbler, making sure to enunciate every ex's name as he laments on his sophomore album, Take Care. Topped off with the use of an ex's voicemail as the main sample of his song, Marvin's Room, he gave the game new rules. Then, we move across the pond. Instead of pushing the envelope on electronic beats or allowing herself to become part of the hip-hop machine most pop artists would succumb to, one artist decided to walk a path no one had done for at least 10 years become a songstress. I'd wager that a ballad hadn't become ingrained in our milieu since maybe We Belong Together in 2005. But Adele came and did just that with her album 21. With the absence of Amy Winehouse and the other artists she begat, Adele took the spotlight as Britain's new queen of blue-eyed soul, seemingly rendering all this talk about maximalist and grandiose production utterly pointless. But that's only what it seemed like. Another songstress, this time from Nashville, decided that hip-hop wasn't the only genre that could evolve. Her country ear for a melody and southern heart for a poignant song lyric allowed her to blanket her honky-tonk with a dubstep drop and still remain true to herself. Funny enough, this was her attempt to fit into pop music. But what she did instead was create a template that every pop singer would soon emulate. Her album, Red, would not only house other pop classics like 22 and We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, which are clearly the spirit mothers of future mega hits of the 2010s, like Marin Morris's The Middle and Halsey and the Chainsmokers Closer, but this album also gave Heartland Rock a fresh face in the 2010s. The genius of Taylor Swift's eclectic songwriting and expansive vision back then was enshrouded by sexist claims that her songs were simultaneously vengeful and frivolous. This woman should get an award for overcoming that in itself. Do you guys notice anything in the music I've mentioned so far? Maybe anything missing? I'll give you a hint. It was the leading genre for the first 50 years of modern music. Some say rock music died in the 2010s. I highly doubt that, because I can guarantee you it will rear its beautiful head out of the asphalt at some point in this new decade and take the world by electric storm. One can dream. But really, all it did was what rock music has always done. Rebel. While every other genre sought to elevate itself, rock music took a step, or two, back. 
in the deep crevices of the music zeitgeist of the 2010s, nowhere to be found on radio or featured playlists, and they probably could have cared less, was the Parquet Courts. With their album Light Up Gold, they took indie music back to the 90s. Their lo-fi garage sound would be emulated by other indie artists such as Soccer Mommy and Snail Mail. They started a quiet revolution that only those with keen perception were able to enjoy. Seek and you shall find. Another genre that would soon be MIA in the last decade was R&B. Not because of its absence, but because of its complete transformation. With 2012's Channel Orange, Mr. Frank Ocean came and went and left R&B in disarray, and we loved every minute of it. Challenging the genre conventions on sound and on sexuality, we have a lot to thank him for. He wouldn't be back for another four years with 2016's Blonde, and he's been gone ever since. But what he gifts us with is soulful music that isn't soul music, not really at least. Listen for yourself and ponder. With the door to convention completely blown open on the two leading genres of black music, all bets were off. And through that obliterated door, enter Beyonce, unannounced, unsuspecting, and ready to trailblaze. Her self-titled album in 2013 marked the beginning of black music as the leader in mainstream music, as the new pop music. Popularizing both the surprise drop and the visual album, having done it first and best in the West, she reminded us why there was a need for artists to once again put cohesive thought into a collection of songs, not just the single, and reminded audiences why we should be excited for it. Whenever you think music has reached an impasse, just wait for Kanye West to show you there's always a new height. Aiming to strip down the maximalism he injected into the radio in the first place, for his 2013 album Yeezus, he drew inspiration from the Louvre, minimalist architecture, and God himself, who makes a guest feature on one of the tracks, all to create an industrial sound that foreshadowed the quintessential SoundCloud rapper's grinding reverbs. This was the stuff of nightmares and the future. Jason Isbell also gave us a stripped-down album in 2013, setting the bar at a new height for Americana artists by making music reminiscent of an era long gone. Critics would claim he lit the spark for music inspired by singer-songwriters of the 70s, a trend that would find its way into other genres of music via the work of artists like Lana Del Rey and Harry Styles. As the culture began to deteriorate from the unavenged blood of black men's bodies, black artists refused to remain silent. Kendrick Lamar had already tackled race issues on his anecdotal 2012 album, Good Kid, Mad City, but 2015's To Pimp a Butterfly saw him look at the experiences of the black people around him and rhapsodize their hurt, their beauty, their strength, and their voices. Hearkening back to the 70s black love and black power movement, Kendrick enlisted the likes of veteran George Clinton and saxophonist Kamasi Washington to paint a picture of America and of black America and of its attempt and inability to coexist. He dismantled hip-hop and put it back together again, and this is the gift that we got. In what I emphatically call the best year in music since I've been alive, or at least since I've been aware that I'm alive, 2016 was the gift that kept on giving. Kanye West gave us another masterpiece to gawk at when he released something that hadn't been done before and hasn't been done since. A living album. The Life of Pablo was an album West released onto platforms, and then suddenly updated the album with a lot of the songs edited in some way. His intentions were to go back and edit it some more, opening a floodgate of possibilities for music in the streaming age. That same year, Rihanna graduated from hitmaker to magnum opus cum laude. Yes, I just made that up. With a new age take and much needed revisiting of the 90s born hip hop soul genre, Rihanna made it clear that her songs on anti would live beyond merely radio recognition.
As the Black Lives Matter movement gained simultaneous traction with Donald Trump's presidential campaign, more and more artists began to write about the State of the Union. One did so insidiously by using the betrayal, mistrust, and eventual healing of her marriage as a metaphor for the black woman's experience as, quote, the most disrespected person in America. Beyonce had did it again, but better. Another visual album, but this time as a narrative with a unified concept. Revitalizing the designated template for a pop album as a platter of multiple genres to master per Michael Jackson's thriller, Beyonce's Lemonade saw her own reggae, hard rock, and even country. Never had we seen a mega superstar be so raw, for example, in the wake of her husband cheating, believing his career would take a hit after revealing the truth of his infidelity. And never had a mega superstar love the art of a concept album as much as Beyonce did. The 2010s saw the rise of alternative pop. Consisting of mostly women with a bite who were too indie to have many TV spots, but mainstream enough to sell records. Starting with Lana Del Rey's Born to Die and spiraling the likes of Marina and the Diamonds and Halsey, among others, one artist eventually decided she wouldn't be afraid to go wherever the music took her. Lord's melodrama revered her alternative mother genre enough to give it dignity and compel others to genuflect as well. Alt-pop meets art, and Lord introduced them. In the 2010s, R&B lost its way, diverged from the way, and then found its way back to itself. SZA's control brought the genre back down to earth after its whirlwind transmogrification throughout the years. With delicate vocals, straightforward lyrics, and honest production, it felt so good to know what the R&B of this decade sounded like. But another genre laughed in the face of its former self, refusing to get back to basics anytime soon. In the wake of country music's survival move of merging with hard rock, sublime experimentation continued with artists like Casey Musgraves, whose spirited country disco tune High Horse seemed to give country even more of a twang. While the rest of her 2018 album Golden Hour blessed the genre and music in general with some of its most brilliant songwriting. The late 2010s also saw the transit of a planet that orbits every 15 years or so, the world of a Latin pop explosion. Latin music, specifically of the urban variety, was going through its own evolution as well, being influenced by American track music of the time. But the rest of the world wasn't privy to it till its very safe, yet fun, Despacito, with Louis Fonzi featuring Daddy Yankee and eventually Justin Bieber, who gave the song international attention. Once America remembered that music from other countries is actually as good as our own, for example, K-pop was also in the middle of its crossover slash takeover, J Balvin blessed us with an urban Latin classic in the form of 2018's Vibras that epitomized how far the genre had ran while most people were unaware. Spanish language music also made waves in the U.S. with Spanish singer Rosalia's second album, El Mal Querer, blending the newfound urban Latin pop with her own country's ancient flamenco sounds. She crafted an avant album unlike anything we'd seen on either side of the globe. On the last year of the decade, we had three women give us the past, present, and future of pop music. During her 10 years in the business, Lana Del Rey steadily honed her craft as a songwriter and singer. And with Norman Rockwell, we can all agree she finally made a classic record that feels so timeless, it's scary. Allowing the 70s singer-songwriter movement to heavily influence her, yet still holding true to the dream pop sound her fans came to know and love her for, she created a sound all her own. Ariana Grande also released her pop classic, Thank You Next, at the end of the decade, showing the final stage of the genre in the 2010s as a callous union with modern hip-hop. 
and leave it to a 16-year-old Gen Zer to usher out the most millennial decade ever with an album she made with her brother in their bedroom? Does taking home all four awards of the main Grammy categories mean that experimentation is no longer alternative, but what's to be expected? No matter. This album is the start of a new subgenre, expounding the foundation of alternative pop, taking a page from emo music, and sprinkled with big pieces of, what the heck do I call this? Billie Eilish ends the decade with taking all of us into the unknown. What a way to start the 2020s. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow The Retrospective Perspective on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for all updates regarding the new episodes and to join in on the conversation. I want to give a shout out to Robbie Beats for creating the podcast theme you're listening to now and to Rafiq Mus for creating the logo designs for The Retrospective Perspective. Both their work can be found and commissioned on Fiverr.com.